Let's Connect podcast series is brought to you by Talent Talks and Life Online. Welcome. I'm Karen Cole, Editor-in-Chief of Talent Talks and Life Online. Welcome, everyone. I'm joined again today with Dr. Robin Whitaker, and we are recording together the six-part podcast series focused on building trust-based partnerships. Now, Robin is passionate about understanding and enabling the environments within which deep collaboration and development of function and relational impact ecosystems can take place. Following 16 years in practice as a family doctor, Robin, of course, left the medical profession to pursue a long-standing interest in education and community cohesion, and of course, the role in which community leaders play in enabling positive growth and societal well-being. So we're really pleased to have you back with us, Robin. And today, essentially, we're focusing on part three, which is really taking a deep look at how we actually establish trust. Uh, Part two and part one we're really focused on understanding what a trust-based partnership would look like and explaining what that shift towards a trust-based partnership would need. And then looking at how we'd open up those pathways for conversations in part two. But today we're specifically focusing on how we establish trust. And I think it's such an important topic and so glad that you're joining us today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Karen. It's lovely to be back with you again this morning. Fantastic. So Robin, let's kick off with, let's define what trust actually looks like within a trust-based partnership. How do people know when there is high trust and when they're functioning in an environment characterized by trust? So Karen, I think that there are a couple of obvious things. The sensation of respect or the knowledge of respect within a partnership, the feeling of safety, so that you feel that even in difficult conversations, There is safety in bringing your perspective and opinion, the commitment to the long term, knowing that trust is not only about everything going brilliantly, it's also about the fact that even when things are tough, you have each other's back and you have each other's back for the long term. And then I think very much so the equation of trust with the experience of feeling loved and cared for. That sounds like a touchy-feely thing to unpack. However, understanding how that manifests in terms of relationship, it is very much around those elements of a high level of feeling connected around something that matters to both of you or to all the partners who are engaged in the partnership. And so that feeling of working together on something that matters to you more than just the immediate, the connection around a greater purpose, then the connection around or the commitment to respect for each other, as I mentioned, to loyalty, this feeling that there is empathy within the relationship and that empathy allows one to be vulnerable and not always perfect. So Trust really allows for us to be human and fully human together. And then reliability. So being accountable to your partners, being or being accountable, taking ownership where there are things that slip up or fall down 
as you as the two partners being aware that sometimes that is going to happen and it doesn't mean that the trust needs to be broken in fact it can be used as something to strengthen the levels of trust between you so again that that recognition that it's not what happens that matters it's how we deal with things that matter and how we show up and own in integrity where something may have gone wrong Absolutely. And Robin, when people enter teams or when they start, first start forming this partnership, is there a level of trust that almost pre-exists or is assumed? Or is there a process by which groups or two individuals would start building this trust? Karen, I think there's something of both. There is the element where you need to be coming into a partnership willing to trust and coming in with an assumption of good intention and an assumption of, so a positive sort of framing of the relationship where you are coming in from a space of your own ability to trust yourself. I think this is really key by the way. So it's not just about what happens with the other person. It's also about being clear in yourself around what your goals, your purpose is, what your intention in entering into the partnership is, and becoming really explicit in that, firstly with yourself, and then with your partner. So there is definitely an element of coming in with the assumption of trust. But trust, as I mentioned, I think in our first podcast, is a verb, not a noun. And it is something which is built over time. And so you can lay down the first foundations of relationship on the basis that you commit to working together in a certain way, you are explicit around how you want to work in partnership, and you set up the structures around your partnership that really allow for fostering of trust. But truly deep trust is something that develops. It is something which lays down layer over layer and the kind of trust which you can almost go to sleep in. You are so confident of it that that you don't have an edge of wondering underneath if all is going to work out well is the kind of trust that's built up over many years and over many experiences of what happens when that trust is challenged and how the partnership navigates difficult situations. It's quite an old-fashioned principle, really. And I think I'd like to talk about that a little bit later on. The values of ethics and morality and custom and ritual that support development of deep levels of trust and the development of the capacity for deep levels of trust and the confidence in your relationships, that they are going to be trustworthy. While we're talking about that, so I think many leaders listening to this, one of the biggest needs is when establishing teams, is there any way that they can fast track this process? And as you were describing that, it is something that is built up over years and through many different experiences or shared experiences together. But are there specific things that leaders could do to begin to build that trust within that team? Absolutely. There is a lot around how we structure the dynamics of a team and how we structure the, the ethos and the habits of how teams operate that support trust evolving more quickly. Some of those include setting up paradigms for regular connection within teams, using specific 
approaches to how conversations are held, how meetings are held, how we build in reflective capacity, both one-on-one and as groups, ensuring that team members know that it's important to the team that they themselves are taking time to do their own work, to reflect, that they are cared for as human beings, not just because of their work, an explicit commitment to relationship before work, an understanding that there is a balance between what a team needs to produce and the environment within which they need to produce that. One of the models that is really fantastically simple, you can feel the truth within it, is Daniel Kim's core model of success, where he talks about the fact that Really, all the work we do together is taking place within the space of four quadrants. Those quadrants are projects and outcomes and relationships and thinking. And what we've fallen into a little bit of a habit and a trap with, and not everybody, so there are many organizations which, which work really well within the relational framework and which are very conscious of this. But what we do seem to have culturally fallen into a habit of is extreme focus on the quadrants of projects and outcomes. So focusing on what we need to be doing, what we are producing. We're all very familiar with the issues around short-termism and quarterly reporting and making a profit and showing that we are valuable because the work we are doing is producing something meaningful. And by meaningful, we often mean financially meaningful. And his preposition is that all projects and all work that we do is based really on the quality of the thinking that we are able to put into them. And the quality of the thinking that we are able to do depends on the relationships within which we are thinking together. And that if we can flip our emphasis from projects and outcomes onto relationships and thinking, the quality of what we produce will dramatically improve. And it is cyclical as well. So as we see that improvement happening, there there is a reinforcing effect on our relationships. Daniel Kim's approach was really that we focus on the relationships, the quality of what we are doing together improves the relationships. I personally am inclined to sit philosophically more with Nancy Klein's work, which states that the quality of everything that we do depends on the quality of the thinking that we do first. And the quality of the thinking that we do first depends on the relationships we are within and on how we are being treated while we are thinking. And so this flip from we focus on the quality of our relationships only to improve the quality of our work towards we focus on the work we do together or the work we do together becomes just another vehicle for us to think and focus on the quality of the relationship we are in because our primary focus has shifted to being in good, strong, trusting relationships in which we think really well together. And that becomes the primary focus of the work that we are doing together. And the rest follows. So it's beneficial always to have um, fantastic outcomes and productivity and good projects. 
but there's a, 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 a sort of conundrum that happens when we when we get so excited about the outcomes and the products that our attention is diverted to those as the thing that is most valuable. And that is that automatically our relationships start to suffer. And so the encouragement to teams is even when you are doing exceptionally well, even when you are facing exceptionally hard times, slow down, create space, and put into place the structures that help the human beings in your teams connect, build good relationships, think well together, focus on each other's value as humans first, and not to let go of the fact that you need to run your projects, you need to make an income, but to really place those as secondary outcomes. And there are ways that you can fast track that. Thank you, Robin. I think that's such a great explanation. And I think we often are so caught up, as you say, in the task at hand of getting that done and the relationships are seen as secondary. And I know even for myself, historically, just defining, I have a good working relationship with somebody instead of a good relationship with them. Those subtle distinctions, I think, can often lead to us putting tasks before a person. And yes, the task needs to get done. It needs to get done to a high quality, but that's not the only substance of the relationship. And if you focus on building that a far stronger relationship the standard of work automatically improves and it's, i'd love to hear some more about those ways that we can fast track that but also if you can put another slant in it if trust has been broken down or if people find that they have been part of a toxic team or there is no more trust within this team what can leaders do so firstly how do we fast track that and then how do we handle some of the negative behaviors or negatives of trust being broken down so firstly, just to start with the fast tracking. So one of the, there are a number of different approaches that can be used, but they're all at the heart of them are very simple. I'm going to talk a little bit about the thinking environment and Nancy Klein's work, because I do find that many of these approaches to fostering good connected teams do focus on the very simple principles contained within this work. And that is really to create structures that slow things down and that allow for considered intentional space to allow people to connect that set up sort of baseline rules, if you like, or baseline organizational habits around being together in conversation and creating an environment of confidentiality and safety. And the time to think environment really focuses on a series of very powerful intentionalities around the creation of safe space. So it looks at how you put into place environments where there is ease. So reducing the sense of rush that can often be achieved by at the outset of a conversation or a meeting, just leaving a pause and a gap. Uh, either using, and this is going to sound very strange for many corporate environments, but it actually is extraordinarily powerful. Using a mindfulness practice that doesn't need to be yogic in its, in its approach, but needs to have somebody articulate for everybody in the room that this time we are going into is a sacred time. 
We're going to set aside everything else that we've brought into the room with us. We're going to take a deep breath in. And on that in-breath, really come into a sense of ourselves in this space and place. And when we breathe out, we just release all of the things that are worrying and concerning us and that are causing us anxiety and a difficulty in thinking together. And we're going to go into a time where we really respect each other's thinking. And then the time to think environment allows for time to be allocated in a very structured way for each person to think that if it's a partnership, that you actually commit to giving a certain amount of time to each partner to think through either a primary issue that is worrying them or an issue that is worrying the organization. And that you do that in a way that explicitly ensures that they are not interrupted in their thinking so they are not it's not a, a conversation it's not an argument you give whether it's five minutes or ten minutes to each person to think through the issue that is of concern and the remarkable thing is that even though this process feels like it may take a very long time it is absolutely remarkable to see that almost without fail, where you allow people unfettered thinking, where the commitment is that you are holding the space for them to think and you are listening with interest and attention, that solutions emerge and that clarity emerges and that people leave feeling that their opinions have been heard and respected and incredibly fresh thinking arises. So when we make that commitment in a team meeting or in a conversation between two partners in a work environment to really respect each other's thinking and not interrupt thinking, we can go to much greater depths, much faster, both in terms of the quality of our thinking and in terms of the sense of being respected and respecting the other person. And just that act creates such rich ground for a sense of trust to develop. It's extremely simple. But I think I mentioned in one of our last, last conversations that the fact that it is extremely simple doesn't make it easy. It's a hard thing to do because... It requires listening to another human being or listening in a meeting in that way really requires us to be able to suspend for a while what we want, what we think ought to happen, and to create space for diverse thought and to create space for maybe else coming up with a solution that's very powerful and us collectively coming up with something that's very powerful. And we're so habituated to want to win. Our culture is so habituated to the individualism and who has the best idea that it's actually quite hard to step into a space where, where we're not playing a game of one-upmanship. We're actually playing a game of great humility in listening and in respecting other people's thinking and opinions. And so that is that that setting up structures and being very explicit about setting up structures that this is how we listen to each other and this is how we treat each other in our organization is an incredibly powerful way to fast track trust. Absolutely. I think that's key. And I think some of the things that you've mentioned in there are some of the practices that we generally take for granted. But I think if we leaders should reflect on 
that internal process that goes on in terms of handing this amount of control over to their team, especially during times when they are looked towards as having the answer and feel judged if they don't have the answer. Very difficult for them to step back at those points in time to, to create this kind of space. It really is. And I think, again, going back to this, that trust starts with self. And it is an interesting conversation. So there is so much discussion around what leadership means, different kinds of leadership for different kinds of environments. And in order to create environments of trust and high quality thinking and genuine partnership and collaborative work, there is a core principle. And it is that you need to commit to doing your own work. You need to commit to becoming really self-reflective, to doing that ideally in partnership with another person who can hold you. So whether that is a coach, whether it is your life part, becoming vulnerable yourself and being willing to go on your own inward journey and being willing to acknowledge that you yourself however much you are lauded and applauded out there or in your organization as this phenomenal leader, we all know that individual human beings are all vulnerable in one way or another. And becoming comfortable with that vulnerability in yourself, becoming comfortable with not being right all the time, that's a journey that has to be take, undertaken if you want to be the kind of leader who can who can hold spaces for other people to be vulnerable because trust in essence has to be attached to vulnerability. It can't be otherwise. In essence, the ability to trust another person means that I don't have to put up a facade with you. Um, and in order to not put up a facade, I need to know that it's okay when I have a bad day. It's okay when I feel inadequate. It's okay when I fail sometimes. And there needs to be, a, especially in environments where there is or existing low trust or in environments where people have been injured and burnt, that is a real commitment to holding a space until a sense of safety starts to develop. So as you mentioned, there's one thing about stepping into an environment with the intention to trust. There's a huge difficulty when you're stepping into an environment where it is toxic or where you perhaps make a decision. You have an epiphany of sorts and you look at what's happening and you make a decision that you wanted to change. And that's a long haul commitment because there are things that need to be undone first before you can build the kind of psychological safety that allows for trust to occur. Fantastic, Robin. I think we'll end there, but that certainly has provided a lot of food for thought and really looking forward to continuing on where we start looking at the importance of language. And I think that's going to play a very important role in how we create that sense of psychological safety that you've just mentioned. So I'm really looking forward to, to part four, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Karen. It's lovely to be in conversation with you again. Mm -hmm.